This week's episode of Carson Sack Podcast is once again brought to you by Thrive Fantasy Sports. Come prop up on Thrive Fantasy this season. Thrive is a daily fantasy sports app for player props. Now, the NFL is back and so is Thrive Fantasy. They have a massive deposit bonus for you all to welcome the NFL props back. If you use my promo code SAC, that's S-A-C-K, when you deposit $20, you're going to get $20 matched by Thrive themselves. The action begins Thursday night with the Browns versus the Bengals. $10,000 are guaranteed with over $20,000 in total prizes up for grabs. And if you love to watch Red Zone on Sundays, check out Thrives $10,000 touchdown only contest and select who you think will score a touchdown or not. And that's it. It's as simple as that. Thrive has also eliminated the due countless hours of research because they only asked you about top tier athletes in a respective sport. If you're using it for the NBA or the NFL, choose 10 out of the 20 player prop options to build your lineup. The more points a selection is worth, the riskier it is. Rack up the most points to win a share of the prize pool. And then it's the U.S. Open this week as well, so let's talk a little bit about the PGA. Thrive has new contests each for each day of the tournaments. So a Thursday only, a Friday only, Saturday only, and a Sunday only. So don't worry if your golfers ruin your weekend by not making the cut. Thrive has awarded over $1.3 million in prizes since launching all the way back in 2018. So, once again, to get involved, use my promo code SAC, S-A-C-K, all capital letters, when you sign up and you'll receive an instant $20 bonus on your first deposit of $20 or more. Download Thrive Fantasy on the App Store or the Play Store or by visiting their website, www.thrivefantasy.com. Sign up and prop up today. Now hit that ish. And sorry, I knew you guys wanted to clap, but everything I'm going to say is going to be amazing. Uh, <laughs> how do you pay, man? Uh, if you don't write checks, how do you pay these guys? Great cash, homie. Mama. Hello and welcome to episode 73 of Carson Sack Podcast, where we talk balls. On this episode, we have a mail sack to get us started. You all once again blew me away with the amount of questions and the quality of the questions. Again, back-to-back weeks being astronomically good. Then we have a lot of NFL talk week one and week two in the NFL season. We're going to talk about both of those Some college football discussion, I'm going to be honest with you right off the bat, not going to be too heavy on that this week. It's hard to get excited for any of these games really because there's not that many good ones. We're going to get a little bit more into that later on in the show. We also are going to have some U.S. Open talk for golf and then at the end, Uh, We are going to mention and discuss the NBA playoffs, the Eastern Conference Finals Game 1 tonight, and then the Game 7 in the Western Conference Semifinals between the Clippers and the Nuggets. We're going to watch those tonight, going to talk about those tomorrow though before I release the podcast, so 
that's where we are a little bit in that. So, without further ado, let's get right into this episode number 73 of The Sack with your all's listener questions in the segment we all have come to know and love as The Mail Sack. This first question comes from Ryan Moore who asks, Was week one a fluke for Christian Kirk, or do you see his target numbers staying relatively low this season with the new addition of DeAndre Hopkins? So, to look at the numbers for Kirk, he had five targets, I believe, Yeah, he had five targets, only one reception. He had zero yards and zero touchdowns. Um, DeAndre Hopkins, on the other side of that, though, had 16 targets, 14 catches, and 151 yards, zero touchdowns. You're looking at it, and he, Kirk is tied with a couple other receivers for the most targets in this week, but wasn't able to bring in uh, four of those. So regarding this issue for you, I think when DeAndre Hopkins did come over from Houston in this trade, it was going to be assumed he was going to be the number one and he was going to get the bulk share of the targets and everything. I certainly didn't see Hopkins having 14 receptions week one. Um, You could see Kyler and Cliff with the play calling was really trying to get him involved and get um, maybe some lack of preparation that Kyler and Hopkins might have had in the preseason maybe make up for lost time this week. I don't think it's any reason to panic. I think Kirk is still that team's second best receiver. I know Fitzgerald is still there and he is so steady and nearly never drops a ball and is going to be productive. But I don't think you have any reason to worry because I do think with how dynamic that offense can be and how often Kyler likes to spread the ball around, that Kirk is going to get his uh, throughout this course of the season. Yes, Hopkins is going to be that number one guy, and you can obviously not discount what Fitzgerald brings to that team, but Kirk is, just be patient. Kirk's time is coming. Uh, He will be a solid player for you. In fantasy, I'm assuming that's why you're asking, so just be patient. Uh, Do not sell on the Christian Kirk uh, stock too early. Next, Kennedy Poston asks, how bad do you feel for Joe Burrow? Listen, Joe Burrow, great guy, great football player, even better guy, some would say. Um, I feel absolutely terrible for him that uh, the Bengals kicker decided to just shit the bed there at the end of the game and miss that field goal for them to go and tie it uh, to, to go to overtime. But uh, he's got a great opportunity this Thursday night to redeem himself in the interstate matchup with the Browns. So, on to, on to week two, Joey. You're going to be just fine. The next question comes from Maeve Armstrong, who asks, how do you juggle all your girlfriends? That's hilarious, Maeve. I'm so glad that you asked. Um, she also followed up with, like, do I have an assistant or do I have a planner? Things like that. Um, I have no girlfriends, Maeve. Absolutely none. In the market, though. So if you know anybody, feel free to pass along my information, my number, my Snapchat. Uh, tell them to give me a follow on Instagram or Twitter. Maybe get to l- know me a little bit better, and then we can figure it out. But how do I juggle all of my girlfriends? Um, it's easy when you have no girlfriends. But thank you for uh, reaching out and asking. The next question comes from Paula Marino. Why does every mom in Pixar films have a dump truck? Listen, I don't know why. Um, it seems like it would take a lot of time to animate all of that junk in the trunk for all of them. Um, you can look at the mom from The Incredibles. That's where my mind goes when I read this question. I'm not sure about any other ones uh, specifically, but that's where like 
holy shit, you take notice of some things like that. Um, why do they, though? I don't know. It's it's not realistic. Not every mom has a dump truck. And uh, I think Pixar is really setting people up for their expectations to be let down if they continue to do that. Next question. Really not a question. Davis Canapel just asked, just the Browns? And he continues... Yeah, he just said, just the Browns. Dave, I understand. I feel your pain. Be patient. I preached this last year with Freddie Kitchens, and I was made to look like a fool. I hope that's not the case with Stefanski this year. We're going to get a little bit deeper into this when I preview the Week 2 game between the Browns and the Bengals coming up a little bit later on, but patience is key. I know that's very difficult to say that after, again, all of last year, I preached it. I thought Freddie was going to turn the ship around, and it just never happened. They stayed out in the storm on the sea, didn't come into port, didn't get things figured out. I think Stefanski's a little bit better coach, so just give it some time. Then, our next question last night comes from Eli George, who asked, Benny RB1? For those of you that did not see the Monday night game, the first one of the doubleheader, James Conner left the game around late second quarter and did not return. He has an ankle injury. And so filling in for James Conner was one Benjamin Snell Jr. from the University of Kentucky. Benny had 19 carries for over 100 yards. I think he had around 113. Uh, it showed that Benny is, when he is given the touches, still able to have uh, productive games. Benny is certainly not going to blow by anybody. He's a good, straight-line, patient runner. He showed that last night. James Conner, I don't know what his availability for Week 2 is yet so far. The Steelers are going to have a bit of a toucher, tougher matchup Excuse me, uh, in Week 2 going up against Denver, who was able to really put the clamps and make it really hard for Derrick Henry last night to run in that second Monday night game. But also you have to look at the few injuries that the Steelers have sustained so far through only Week 1. One offensive line, how is that going to impact things as well? But I think Benny, maybe not has earned the running back one spot just yet because James Conner, I still think, is a great back. But he looked questionable at times last night um, running and also trying to get him involved in the passing game a little bit, just dropping easy passes. Um, it's very easy to root for James Conner. His story, we all obviously know that coming back from cancer and everything. Um, he's in a big contract year, so he obviously wants to be on the field as much as possible to show the Steelers or other teams, other suitors for this offseason that, hey, I can stay healthy, I can produce, I can be on the field for all three downs, I can be that pass catching back as well. Again, I don't think Connor has totally lost his number one spot or anything. All I think really is that Tomlin is probably going to get Benny Snell involved a little bit more, up his carries per game a little bit. Um, but I could see if in this week two matchup, if Connor isn't available to go and they are forced to use Benny again and he has um, another productive game. And I'm productive. I'm saying maybe like 75 yards and a touchdown or something like that. Then I think you really need to start monitoring that situation a little bit more because Benny's now obviously younger, still on the rookie contract, not uh, a litany of injury history that Connor has. That's when you need to uh, be saying, oh, is Benny Snell going to be the running back one? 
We now switch over to the questions that were sent in on Instagram, and we are going to start off with Danny Tilton, who asked, where does that putt on 18 land on your list of life achievements? For those of you that do not know what he is referencing, um, a couple weeks ago on Sunday, the day after Derby, we, being the St. Albert Fantasy League, held our draft, and we also held our first annual golf scramble, and my team comes down, it's me, Jake Mattingly, Andrew Dye, and Jalen Hibbs. Uh, we are faltering a little bit on the front nine. We're in okay position, but third at the turn, and then Jake Mattingly goes off. I believe he finished, not he, our team did, but it was pretty much Jake Mattingly. Went birdie, birdie, eagle, birdie, eagle. And this last hole is where things are important. We come into 18. We're standing on the tee, and we are down one. So a birdie ties it, and an eagle wins it. Uh, we were playing at Weisinger Hills out in Shelbyville. Par 5, 18, Jake hits it up the right side. Um, a little bit of rough, about 102 yards from what I remember. And then all of us, I hit the green, but it's not in, I am short of the green, excuse me. And Jake gets us on, it's a two-tiered green. So I am in the back half, we are in the back half of that. And it's downhill, moves left to right on us. Um, a very difficult putt. You could, it just to get an idea of what it would look like, um, sort of John Rahm's putt. Um, that he had in the second playoff event in the PGA playoffs. Uh, Andrew goes first. He blows it by but gives a good read. Jalen does the same thing. He blows it by a little bit, but it was tracking for a little bit. He's going to make me say that regardless, so I might as well just say, yes, it was tracking for a little bit, but ultimately he blew it by. Um, before I hit, Jake tells me, hey, like this John Rom putt last week, you might as well do it. And I tell him, yeah, fuck it, I might as well. Um, I hit it with good pace. It goes in, trickles in. My team goes crazy. It was an awesome moment on my all-time. We win the tournament as well, um, so that was big. But ultimately, Jake was the wind beneath my wings on this the entire day. We are not in that position at all with what, without Jake Maddenly going off. Um, so shout out to him. Where does it rank on my all-time achievements um, sports-wise? It's probably a top three for me. Um, All-time life achievements, it's probably number eight or nine. So it was a big moment, and it was it felt good. Um, it couldn't have happened to a nicer guy, though. Uh, the next question comes from Michael Bennett, who asked, For a non-WWE fan, who is the most recognizable WWE superstar, past or present? I think you got to go Hulk Hogan, Stone Cold, The Rock, but The Rock is actually, I think, now with the like huge resume he has in Hollywood with the movies he's done and the blockbusters he's done. Obviously, yes, he had a huge WWE career, but I think people now are just thinking of The Rock, Dwayne Johnson, as actor first or if it's not first, it's literally right neck and neck with what he did in WWE. Um, John Cena, and then the new face of the company that they're trying to make big, who he's going to be in, I believe, this next Fast and Furious, whenever it comes out, uh, is Roman Reigns. I think you got to go probably just out of those, Hulk Hogan, because he was so important and also stretched out into movies and tv shows and all this other stuff 
Stone Cold as well, but I think The Rock is probably the most recognizable, but I think it's often, it's becoming overlooked that he was a WWE superstar, and now he's just really the biggest action movie, movie star on the planet. This next question comes from Trent Revelette, who asks, who does the fucking? Trent, I'm glad you asked. The answer just so happens to be this. No, you know what I say? We do the fucking. Me and you, drama. We do the fucking. Let's talk to our people. You know what? First we talk, and then we walk. Drama, we do the fucking. Fucking. The fucking. The fucking. Dice does the fucking. Fuck! The next question, we swing back around to Mike Bennett. He's got two here. He asks, who is the better Mario baseball player between you, Crum, and Jared? I never had the pleasure of playing Jared. Um... And I don't recall seeing a lot of him while he did play. So, unfortunately, I cannot speak to his abilities playing that game. I imagine he's pretty good. He's pretty good at a lot of just obscure things. So, really, I can only speak for myself and Crumb, who, over the course of our two years living together uh, in college, had quite a rivalry when it came to the Mario Baseball franchise. Myself... In the confines of the game, I was big on small ball. Small ball wins games. Took that page right out of Terry Francona's uh, managerial skill playbook. Small ball win games. We're bunting. We're stealing bases. We're winning with starting pitching. Um, I was a fierce mind game player as well with Crum. It was a little easy to rattle him. You tell him a couple pitches that you're going to pitch, you end up pitching those, and then boom, you change you change it up. You tell him, oh, I'm going to throw a change up here. You throw a high fastball, he's swinging and missing. Um, Crum was very deadly at the plate. I'm not going to lie. It was hard to get him out on a consistent basis. Cut And he, I think he crushed me over the course of the two years we played with how many home runs he hit and everything. I do not have the statistics for the overall wins. If we were looking at, I would probably say Crum probably won a few more games than me. But I think if you told me there was a best of seven series or a best of three, or if you said... Carson, you gotta win this game or I, you're dead. I'm putting all the money on myself because I really think in one of those settings, I'm gonna be able to beat him. If we do talk about uh, Super Strikers, though, the Mario soccer game, holy shit. I, I put everybody... Um, on Waller on notice when that game came out. So I would love if we could get um, some questions about that so I could continue to brag about myself a little bit. Then Mike Bennett also asked, what was the most memorable thing from being a bouncer at Tin Roof? Besides the great friends and the camaraderie and the 50% off all drinks and alcohol, there is one pretty memorable story that I always call back to when someone asks something like this so it was a night and one of the positions the stations that you stood at at tin roof when you were a bouncer was to the right of the stage by the bathrooms to make sure nobody was sneaking in or doing anything doing any funny business in the bathrooms well one night obviously every night there's a considerably longer line for the girls bathroom than the men's so this one girl Um, She had blonde hair, I believe, so we're just going to call her the blonde girl. She decides, hey, I got to pee so bad, or I got to shit so bad, or whatever she's got to do in the bathroom. She decides to cut the line and go forward. So there was this brown-haired girl 
We're going to call her brown haired girl for the purpose of this story because I didn't get their names. She was not having any of that. So the brown haired girl decides to pull the blonde haired girl's hair pretty aggressively, pretty hard. Um, that just sparks things into motion. Ultimately, the blonde haired girl does get to use the bathroom, but obviously I need to kick the brown haired girl out because you can't fight at a bar and that's a big no-no. But she's in the women's restroom and I am not permitted as a man to go into the women's restroom. It's creepy um, and I think it's against bylaws or some something like that. So I go and get my manager that happened to be a woman and I say, hey, this is the situation. Can you help me get her out? So for about 30 minutes, the brown-haired girl doesn't leave the bathroom. She will not come out, and obviously I cannot go in. Um, she frequently peeks her head around the corner and looks at me to see if I'm still there. Yes, I'm still there. That's my position for the night. I'm not going anywhere. Um, she's looking to see if I am gone so maybe she can sneak back out into the crowd. So ultimately, after about 30 or 45 minutes, the brown-haired girl decides to leave. Um, but she goes down fighting, to say the least. She's walking out, I politely have to escort her, and she's acting like everything's cool. Well, she gets to the front door, and what do you know, the blonde-haired girl decides to walk by, and I didn't hear what she said, but words were exchanged, and ultimately that was the wrong fucking decision. Because the brown-haired girl, upon hearing whatever the blonde girl said, once again grabs her by the hair and just yanks her down onto the hard cement floor of tin roof. The blonde-haired girl leaves in embarrassment, and the brown-haired girl um, leaves on her own accord after that, knowing that she had won the evening and ultimately humiliated the blonde-haired girl. So that would be my uh, most memorable thing about being a bouncer at Tin Roof. The next set of questions comes from Bailey Lehman, Trent's girlfriend, who asks, Should I switch Deshaun Watson out for Cam Newton this week in my fantasy? Yes or no? Let's see. The Seahawks play the Patriots on Sunday night. If you want something to watch and you, have a, you want a reason to watch, put Cam Newton in. Um, I'm a big fan of doing that, having my guys play in primetime. The overall matchup, though, Deshaun Watson and the Texans, they are going to be going up against <clears throat> Baltimore. That's an extremely tough defense. Honestly, I would, I'm gonna, I would ride with Cam. I think Baltimore's defense is one of the best. Um, obviously. I do think, though, there's going to be more opportunities for Deshaun to succeed because I think they're going to rely heavily on him to have a chance in this game. But I think just the better matchup and the whole uh, primetime thing, you should leave in Cam Newton. The next question from Bailey says, were Brady's balls dragging yesterday? Were they dragging? No. They were sagging and a little flat. Um, first game back, though, for Tom Brady... There were some lack of timing that he had with the receivers. That was to be expected. I think the thing for the Buccaneers only improved. So dragging and sagging yesterday, yes. Dragging and sagging for the rest of the season, no man. The next question comes from Annie Brown, who says, Live review of all the White Claw flavors. Alright, going down the line, in the variety pack, we have raspberry. Listen, I don't dislike it, but I don't love it either. I'll drink it. Um, it's it's like a 
6 out of 10 for me. I'm not going to complain if somebody hands it to me, but there are other flavors that I enjoy more. Black Cherry, 10 out of 10. Everybody knows that's the best flavor. Um, you get a variety pack. Everybody's fighting for that Black Cherry. Hey, can you grab me a White Claw out of the fridge or out of the cooler? Yeah, um, yeah, just make sure it's Black Cherry. That's, it's great. Mango, I was not as impressed with and didn't live up to the hopes that I had for it. It's still better than raspberry, so I give it a 7 out of 10, but still not that great. Natural Lime gets a lot of hate. Not a lot of people like it. I give it an 8, though. I think it's refreshing. I think it's good. It tastes like a Focus with a pH, one of the uh, carbonated seltzer water type uh drinks that are popular around louisville and gaining notoriety around the country i like natural lime and then we have the ruby grapefruit also i give that an eight it's pretty good i'm not a grapefruit fan myself um of the just regular fruit but the ruby grapefruit here flavor i'll drink it i'm not gonna say hey get me that one specifically but i'm not gonna complain if it's handed to me our next question comes from stephanie mclean who asked another fantasy football question, should I switch out Patrick Mahomes for Aaron Rodgers? You took Patrick Mahomes for a reason. You gotta leave him in there. I expressed to you last night, and I'm gonna continue to express to him again to you again. Trade Rodgers. I don't care what people say. Don't get bullied into keeping two good quarterbacks on your team for no reason. Bite the bullet, pick somebody up that's decent or serviceable off the waiver wire for the one week Mahomes has his bye. And just ride with Mahomes. You took him early for a reason. Keep Mahomes. Trade Rodgers. Next, Andrew Crum asks, What's the ceiling for Louisville football this year? Boy, oh boy. Do I have a little something for Louisville football coming up. The ceiling? Second in the ACC. Second or third. Because there are some right now decent teams in the ACC obviously that starts with Clemson who is by far and away the number one and best team in the ACC itself then you also have to look at North Carolina you can look also at Miami those teams which you got a big matchup this Saturday between Louisville and Miami at Louisville Pittsburgh's in the top 25 now Georgia Tech Goes down and beats Florida State. Florida State's a goddamn dumpster fire. Georgia Tech, um, not real sure. Notre Dame, if you want to throw them into the ACC for this year, sure, whatever. Um, that's I don't count them as ACC, but I know technically they are. Um, just going down Louisville's schedule, Miami, that's a tough game. At Pittsburgh, I think Pittsburgh is going to bully ball Louisville. Georgia Tech, that should be a win. Notre Dame, that's probably a loss. Florida State, that'll probably be a Louisville win, and that'll be the big hyped-up thing for UofL fans this year, whatever. Uh, Virginia Tech, I'm not sold on them at all. Then they go to Virginia, host Syracuse. Those should be two wins. Go to Boston College and Wake Forest. Listen, if everything pans out right, you're looking, I think, at worst, fourth or third in the ACC um, at best if you get hot and there's a couple losses but by uh, Notre Dame and uh, North Carolina then you're looking at second I think second's realistically your highest ceiling and then our last question for the mail sack this week comes from Austin Lutterbuck 
who asked, does OBJ actually like to get shit on? If you watch that performance that he had against the Ravens, it wasn't all his fault, but the answer to that would be yes. Um, in his personal life, probably not. Um, it's not my position, again, to kink shame anybody. If that's what he's into, that's what he's into. But I think he um, is too much of a pretty boy to enjoy being defecated on. So, uh, probably not. But, listen, if you want to believe those rumors about him, you're more than welcome to. Just don't judge a man for what he's into. It's his choice. It's his sex life. Let's, let's ease off him a little bit on that. That is going to conclude this week's edition of the Mail Sack on Carson Sack Podcast, where we talk balls. Once again, that segment is not possible without the fan interaction. Fan, y'all are my friends. I feel like an asshole calling you all fans. So it's not possible without my friends that listen and see my stories and all that and send in questions to the podcast. So thank you very much for doing that. It helps me out a lot, and I truly appreciate it. We are now going to switch focus to the NFL and Week 2. We are going to get things started with the Bengals and the Browns, the Thursday night game. The Bengals losing a heartbreaker to the Chargers last week, 16-13, to after Joe Burrow has a fairly decent um, opening weekend as an NFL starter, uh, going for 193 yards and an interception. Ultimately, not his fault why the Bengals lost, though he did his job and got them on a last-minute drive to the red zone in... Um, the field goal territory and Randy Bullock just decides hey I'm gonna fuck this one up and shanks his game tying field goal and the Bengals ultimately lose on the other side of the field the Browns were absolutely dog walked by the Baltimore Ravens Uh, Baker Mayfield forced to throw a little bit more than what I think he wanted to definitely more than what the new head coach uh, Stefanski wants to had to throw the ball 39 times for only 189 yards one touchdown was a little errant I read an article um, I wasn't able to watch a lot of the Browns first game so that was a little upsetting but I read an article and it was a bit concerning because it really pointed out all the flaws for Baker and they're just simple little ones that he's really just staying on this one read um, for his first receiver. He's not working through his reads when his number one guy is covered. He gets some happy feet in the pocket. And normally you would hope by this third year, all those issues would be taken care of. And they're just not. And I think hopefully with time and he gets a little bit more comfortable in this Stefanski offense that those things can be managed and he can approve upon them but if they're not then things are going to continue to be difficult all year for the Cleveland Browns the big matchup to look for in this one is how are the Bengals receivers uh, AJ Green Tyler Boyd um, at times John Ross And how is Joe Burrow and them going to be able to exploit this Browns secondary who at times, I know going up against Lamar, the reigning MVP, who you can't begin to give enough credit for how good of a passer he actually is. Obviously the running, that's what comes to mind first, but Lamar Jackson is a great passer. Um, How are those guys for the Bengals going to be able to take advantage of a banged up secondary for the Browns? On the opposite side, the Browns are going to look to establish the run, get Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt involved early and often for them, 
I think ultimately, though, the Browns' defenses are going to make enough plays and slow down Burrow, and I think the Browns are going to lean heavily on the run. I don't think they're going to fall behind as quickly as they did in this game against the Ravens. Um, they're going to get Chubb and Hunt involved enough and be able to control tempo, control the time of possession, and ultimately the Browns get their first win against the Bengals on Thursday night. The next game we look at, we have the Broncos going to Pittsburgh to face the Steelers. The Steelers coming off the first win of the season on Monday night as they went to the Meadowlands and beat the Giants. And then the Broncos coming off their first loss of the year against the Titans in the nightcap of that doubleheader on Monday night. Story for the Steelers so far this year, Big Ben has looked pretty decent. There were some questions and calls for concern on my end. Um, in the first quarter, first quarter and a half, he was missing some easy throws. A couple of those were just drop passes. They weren't really his fault. But Ben finishes the night with 229 yards, three touchdowns. Again, the James Conner issue um, for the running back situation. If he doesn't go, then Benny Snell is going to be that bell cow back for them. But ultimately, I think this is a game that Ben Roethlisberger is going to have to go out and win because I do think that Denver defense, um, for how well they stopped Derrick Henry, is going to be able to pose some problems for the run game for the Steelers as well. For the Broncos' offense, though, Drew Locke, 216 yards and one touchdown in the loss. They were able to get Melvin Gordon involved, too, on the ground. He had 78 yards and a touchdown. And then I cannot speak highly enough about Noah Fant. I absolutely love Noah Fant as a player this year. And going forward, I love him. He had five receptions, 81 yards, and a touchdown. Um, I expect him to have a similar stat line this week as well but the big thing I think that the Steelers are going to be able to do is get after and get pressure on Drew Locke force him to make some tough decisions some quick decisions get the ball out of his hands maybe make a few mistakes and ultimately I think Pittsburgh is going to come out and I think the Broncos I think they put a real big premium on winning this first game they might come out a little flat and I think Pittsburgh ultimately does end up getting the victory the next game, we have the Giants going to the Bears. Giants losing on Monday Night Football to the Steelers. Daniel Jones, 279 yards. Two touchdowns also did throw those two interceptions. And then last week, Mitchell Trubisky leading the game-winning drive, um, rebounding from his terrible season last year with three touchdowns, uh, 242 yards. The Bears did get a little lucky with the... <clears throat> Excuse me, with DeAndre Swift for the Lions dropping the game-winning touchdown in the end zone. This is going to be a very tough, tight game, very competitive game. It's going to be interesting to see how the Bears are going to try and slow down Saquon Barkley with that front seven that the Bears have, led by Cleo Mack, a dominant one. And it's going to be interesting to see how Saquon Barkley rebounds after the Steelers' defense was able to really stifle him. Ultimately, I am going to go with the Giants over the Bears in this one. I just think that Daniel Jones and Saquon are going to rebound, and Saquon especially. And then the defense for the Giants, who they didn't look great against Pittsburgh, but they weren't terrible. I think a better matchup with Mr. Trubisky, who at times has shown he's shaky, not as accurate as Big Ben, or not obviously not as good of a quarterback as Big Ben. I think the Giants are able to take advantage of that, and the Giants end up winning. 
Moving down the line, you have the Falcons going to the Cowboys. The Falcons coming off a loss last week to the Seahawks. The Falcons losing 38-25, to but had a big day on offense. That's not going to be a cause for concern for them all season. It's the defense that I mentioned last week that was going to be their Achilles heel. Matt Ryan... 450 yards, two touchdowns, one interception. Todd Gurley making his debut for the Dirty Birds. 14 carries, 56 yards, and one touchdown. So he was able to get involved and stay healthy um, and have a big bulk share of carries for them. And then Julio Jones, nine receptions, 157 yards. On the opposite end of the field, Dak for the Cowboys. He had 266 yards and a touchdown. Zeke had 96 yards and one touchdown on the ground and then a receiving touchdown as well. And Amari Cooper had 10 catches for 81 yards. This one for me, this is a Carson Sack pick. And also, I would just like to remind you, I give out three of these picks a week. They're all against the spread. And last week, what do you know? Brace your ears. The sack picks went 3-0, baby. So we're going to try and continue the hot streak here. We are going to take the Cowboys over the Falcons in this one. Dallas is giving five points. I just think it's a big rebound game for the Cowboys defense and then that Cowboys offense who under McCarthy was vaunted, talked about a lot. They looked flat at times and then some questionable decisions by McCarthy that wanted to go on fourth down to go for it, not kick the field goal, tie it up at 20 apiece. I just think it's a big rebound week and I think ultimately the Falcons defense cost them again and the Cowboys end up covering that five. It's enough football number though so it's a little, little concerning. Hopefully some sharps uh, end up betting it to a football number. The next game, you have the Lions going to the Packers, and Aaron Rodgers, as much as I dislike the guy, had himself a ball game on Sunday against the Vikings. Uh, threw for 364 yards and four touchdowns. Aaron Jones picked up right where he left off last season with 65 yards, excuse me, 66 yards and one touchdown. I just think you can expect more of the same in this one from Green Bay. Uh, the Lions didn't look Awful, impressive, impressive, excuse me, against the Bears. Um, I'm not sold on Matt Patricia. I was big into him when he was hired as the Lions coach, but he has not shown me any reason to believe in him at all as a coach. So I am ultimately going to take the Packers over the Lions. The next game, we have the Jaguars going to the Titans. Tennessee is a nine-point favorite in this one. Derrick Henry, in his first game, as I've mentioned, bottled up. He had 31 carries for 116 yards. Not a great average. Ryan Tannehill, 249 yards and two touchdowns, and they needed him a lot. Ultimately, though, the Titans did look pretty sloppy on Monday night going up against the Broncos. I'm expecting a bit of a rebound and... Ryan Tannehill will have a bigger game and show why he was paid all this money to be um, the quarterback for the Titans. And I expect Derrick Henry to have a big game as well. But it's extremely um, impressive and just shows you the type of character that Gardner Minshew has to go out there. He was 19 for 20, wins the game, ends up having three touchdowns. Um, the way that the Jaguars are just... They obviously have only won one game, but to do that, and my bold prediction for the year is already done. They already won a game, and I said they weren't going to win any of them. Um, 
for them to do that speaks to the true character of Marone, head coach, and then a lot of these players that are, they were left for dead pretty much by the cons and the ownership of the Jaguars, but still go out and get a big AFC South win that the Jaguars are able to last week against the Colts. Couldn't speak highly enough about the Jaguars, but unfortunately I am going to take the Titans in this one. The next game, we have the Vikings going to the Colts. I am actually going to take the Vikings in this one. They're getting three points. This is one of my sack picks, so now we have that. Um, Kirk Cousins played extremely well for Kirk Cousins' standards. 259 yards and two touchdowns. Dalvin Cook was able to get 50 yards and two touchdowns on the ground. And then Adam Thielen not skipping a beat with the loss of his running mate, Stephon Diggs. He had 110 yards and two touchdowns. The Colts lose Marlon Mack, so we are going to see Jonathan Taylor and Naheem Hines. It's going to become the Jonathan Taylor show for them on the ground. Again, I am so out on Phillip Rivers. Threw the ball for 46 times. 363 yards, so some big numbers, but two interceptions. Um, Paris Campbell had himself a nice little game, the Ohio State receiver in his second year. Six receptions for 71 yards. But, um, again, this is a matchup to watch because the Colts defense is great against the run. And, obviously, that built the uh, Vikings offense, excuse me, they start and end with how well that run is doing if the Colts are able to stifle that and make Kirk Cousins go out and beat them then I could easily see the Colts picking up the win in this one but I just don't foresee that happening I think Dalvin Cook is too good of a runner to be totally stopped he'll get his um he's gonna get got as well to quote Marshawn Lynch I'm gonna get got but I'm gonna get mines too I think that's exactly what's gonna happen Cook will be able to find his way into the end zone one time be enough of a threat that the play action and they're gonna the Colts are gonna have to honor and defend the run and I think that is ultimately why the Vikings beat the Colts next we have the Bills going to the Dolphins the Bills with Josh Allen going for 312 yards and two touchdowns in the air also leading the team in rush yards with 57 and a rushing touchdown Stephon Diggs making his debut for the Bills led the team in receiving with eight receptions for 86 yards I just think that the Bills defense pairing up with Josh Allen and his continued growth are what is going to be a season-long thing to watch, and I think it's going to only continue to happen in this Week 2 matchup against Miami. I take the Bills over the Dolphins in this one. Fitzpatrick threw three interceptions. It's not two a time yet down in South Beach, but the clock is ticking. Um, I think the Bills defense is going to be able to create a multitude of turnovers this week as well, and they end up getting the win. Next, we have the 49ers coming off a surprising loss to the Cardinals last week, going to New York to face the Jets. Big rebound game for the 49ers. They are head and shoulders above. It's not just a shampoo and conditioner. Um, it's a saying. They are head and shoulders, the better team than the Jets, and they are going to show it um, in this Week 2 matchup. It's as simple as that. The Jets are a dumpster fire. Uh, Le'Veon Bell placed on IR. He's going to miss at least three weeks. I take the 49ers over the Jets. The next game, you have a matchup in the NFC between the Rams and the Eagles. The Rams, a one-and-a-half point favorite. The Rams coming out, and on Sunday night, a lot of people were saying the Cowboys, that was sort of the narrative, how they lost the game. But ultimately, I think this Rams team is just good. Jared Goff was picking his spots. Um, 
I really think McVay wanted to establish the run, and that's good. Um, he got the three backs involved, heavily Malcolm Brown, um, Henderson, and the rookie Cam Akers. Uh, Goff, 275 yards, no touchdowns, one interception. Um, the best-kept secret in the NFL at the wide, wide receiver position, Robert Woods, six catches, 105 yards. And then the defense for the Rams was able to step up and make big plays, and Aaron Donald was uh, wrecking havoc as it has just come to be expected by him on Dak and that front line for the Cowboys all night. I expect that to happen again. Um, I'm going to take, this is my third pick. I'm taking the Rams to beat the Eagles to cover that one and a half. I just think that for how much the Eagles offensive line struggled with the Redskins defensive line, who extremely good, very deep, Chase Young, Bostic, Kerrigan. Um, when you have the best interior defensive lineman and they can move him around so much with Aaron Donald that the Rams have, um, I think it's going to be extremely difficult for them, the Eagles, to do really anything. Uh, Carson Wentz, in his first game, 270 yards, two touchdowns, but two interceptions as well. And if uh, Miles Sanders is hurt as well, you got to lean on Boston Scott. Um, he didn't do much in that first game either. So, And that Eagles defense did well for that first half. And then they just, I don't know what the hell happened, but the just a flip switched and the Eagles de team not just the offense nor defense whole team just sort of looked and fell flat so um maybe they come out trying to start hot but I think ultimately in the long game the Rams are going to be able to win this game so just a recap of the picks for this week we have the Cowboys covering the five point spread we have the Vikings covering getting three points and then we have the Rams covering giving a point and a half to the Eagles. The next game, we'll look at a big NFC South matchup in week two, the Panthers and the Buccaneers. Obviously, the Buccaneers, we need to start there, coming off their loss last week to the Saints. Tom Brady, 239 yards, two touchdowns, but did throw two costly interceptions. Where I'd like to lead with this, though, Ronald Jones is the running back down there. The way he looked and how he ran with a purpose was finishing runs. Um, him and Fournette are going to be a great combination, but make no mistake about it, Ronald Jones is that number one. Uh, Godwin for the Buccaneers as well, six receptions, 79 yards, but... I think over give it some time over the season when Brady through practice and these games are going to be able to build a rapport with the receivers and sort of he's going to find some guy. I don't know who it is yet, but just when they need a big play or just a gain of four yards, he's just going to know exactly where he is. And you would think that would have been Gronk so far in week one, but he wasn't utilized, I think, to the best of his ability. Week one, he didn't have much of an impact on the game. Mm -mm. Uh, Gronkowski, he was only targeted three times. Um, 11 yards, two receptions. Um, I think that's going to be exploited a little bit more in this matchup against the Panthers. Uh, for the Panthers, Teddy Bridgewater making his debut for them. He goes for 270 yards on a touchdown, a very Teddy Bridgewater stat line. Uh, McCaffrey, 23 carries, 96 yards and two touchdowns. And then the bright spot for the young receiving core for the Panthers, Robbie Anderson, six receptions and 115 yards. I was pretty impressed with how well the Buccaneers defense did uh, slowing down Michael Thomas. He had a very pedestrian game, 
not very much like him. I think that secondary for the Buccaneers is going to perform again this coming week, give some problems for the uh, receivers that the Panthers are going to line up out there. That's going to take a big game from McCaffrey. He's very capable of doing that, but I ultimately think the Buccaneers are going to end up getting their first victory um, behind a big game from Tom Brady, um, Ronald Jones, and I think Gronk gets a little bit more involved this week with a touchdown and maybe three or four catches um, propelling the Buccaneers to a win. The next game, we have the Washington football team off their surprising come from behind victory in week one against the Eagles. They're going to be taking on another bird team. Another bird, excuse me, I don't know. I used to do that. I didn't do it a lot last year. I'm going to bring it back this year. The for the bird teams. Um, just keep your ears peeled. Um, so the Washington football team plays the Arizona Cardinals. Kyler Murray having 230 yards for the air and a touchdown, leading the team in rushing with 91 yards on the ground and a touchdown. And then New Hopkins, you can't say it enough, 14 receptions for 151 yards. They, okay, Arizona is going to win this game, I think, pretty handedly. I think that the front seven for the Redskins are going to do well and get pressure on Kyler but as we've seen last week and all of last year too when he's mobile I think that's when he's most dangerous he can hurt you uh with his arm and through the air and I feel like Kyler is most comfortable on the run where he can just make plays um when things break down so ultimately I do think Arizona beats the Washington football team but a shout out to Dwayne Haskins a very Okay stat line, 178 yards, but a touchdown, but apparently gave a rousing pump-up speech at halftime that propelled the Washington team to a victory. So good good for him, but ultimately I think they're going to have to ask him to do a little too much to win this game this coming week, and I think that's where the Arizona defense, who did su- not surprisingly well, but better than expected, um, against the 49ers, that's where I think they're going to uh, really take advantage of that matchup and the Cardinals will win. Moving focus, we go to an AFC West matchup between the Chiefs and the Chargers. The Chargers able to escape Cincinnati with a 16-13 win and the Chiefs looking quite dominant last Thursday against the Texans. I think this is going to be just a lot of what we've already seen. Uh, The Chiefs coming out and looking like world beaters, getting pretty much whatever they want on offense. Mahomes being able to pick and choose uh, who he wants to throw it to, when he wants to throw it to, and how he wants to throw it to them. Um, I do think the Chargers defensive line, Ingram and Bosa are going to be able to get some pressure on him. But as as we've seen, Mahomes is a wizard at scrambling and moving around in the pocket and getting out of the pocket and making throws on the run. So I'm not too concerned about that. The emergence of Clyde Edwards-Hilaire just makes this offense for the Chiefs so dynamic. Edwards-Hilaire, 25 carries, 138 yards, and a touchdown. Um, I just don't think the Chargers have the offensive firepower uh, with Tyrod Taylor at quarterback to keep neck and neck with this Chiefs team. So I am ultimately going to take the Chiefs over the Chargers. The next we have the Ravens and the Texans. The Texans, again, I'm going to go, it's sort of the last thing. The Ravens were able to get whatever they wanted, however they wanted with whoever they wanted against the Browns, and I think they're going to be able to do the exact same thing here. I don't think the Texans' defense, especially the linebackers and the secondary, are going to be able to keep up with Mark Andrews, uh, 
Marquise Brown, uh, Willie Sneed, or any of the other weapons that the Ravens are going to use. And then that run game, I don't like the Texans front seven enough. We saw them just give up 100 plus yards to a rookie on the ground um, with Ingram and Jackson and J.K. Dobbins as well. Those three-headed monsters in Baltimore, what they're going to be able to do on the ground is pretty scary. And then the offensive firepower, yes, you have Deshaun Watson, one of the best young quarterbacks in the NFL, but the lack of a big play receiver like a DeAndre Hopkins is going to really show in this game and going forward. Um, so I am going to take the Ravens over the Texans. And the Ravens' defense, I understand they're playing um, the Browns with a new scheme, everything like that, but the Ravens' defense is nothing to be slept on. They are so fucking good. So just keep in mind that as well. Then the Sunday night game, you have the Patriots and the Seahawks. And all I got to say about this is let Russ cook my goodness give russell west russell westbrook holy shit give russell wilson the mvp through week one uh 322 yards four touchdown uh 29 yards on the ground dk metcalf 95 yards and a touchdown uh it was a pleasure to see what russell wilson is able and capable of doing when he is given enough opportunities he threw the ball um 35 times, 31 for 35. Seattle, obviously they're going to be able to run the ball, but when Russ is able to cook, and it's a trend, hashtag get it trending, um, it's already trending in Seattle right now before the game is even kicked off. When he is able to showcase his talent, that team becomes better and they become so much more dynamic. Rather than on second and long and third and long, or just when they need a big play saying, hey, Russ, go make this. When the reins are let off a little bit and Russ is able to create and just throw the ball all around the field, which he is more than capable of doing, that offense becomes so much more dynamic. And Chris Carson showed two receiving touchdowns. You can use him in the passing game as well. And that just makes him even more dynamic. The defense looked pretty good as well for the Seahawks, so I like that. On the other side of the field, you have the New England Patriots who come off their win against Miami in the first game. Cam Newton, 15 of 19, efficient for 155 yards. That's a little concerning. But Newton doing his biggest work on the ground with 15 carries, 75 yards, and two touchdowns. Um, he had a nice little rapport with Edelman. They were able to connect for five receptions uh, for 57 yards. Listen, if... Bill Belichick and the Patriots and the entire city of New England and Boston, whatever, Foxborough are going to put all their eggs in the basket of being able to use Cam Newton as a runner all season and use the run game for them to win. I have some concerns. Listen, I understand he's fully healthy now, but it's hard to keep a quarterback healthy. And they, we've seen in the past, it's a storyline that I don't like to really listen to and hear, but it is true. NFL referees don't call the same penalties or take the same precautions with Cam Newton because he is such a physical, big runner for a quarterback that they would with other quarterbacks or runners. So I... That's my only concern going forward. Obviously, you knew Belichick was going to have a great defense and was going to be able to cater that offense with McDaniels to what Cam Newton was going to do best, which is obviously using his threat, using his legs as a threat on the ground. But that concerns me throughout the season. Um, in this one, though, 
just because of travel and honestly the fans not being there it's not going to be as impactful but I think the Seahawks do get a big win against the Patriots um, in primetime on Sunday night and then the last game of week two on Monday night September 21st you have the Saints going to the Raiders Drew Brees going for the Saints 160 yards and two touchdowns um, Alvin Kamara with two receiving touchdowns as well Jared Cook leading the team in receptions. Uh, Derek Carr for the Raiders in his win last week against the Panthers. 239 yards and one touchdown. But Josh Jacobs, 93 yards on the ground and three touchdowns. I just think that the Saints defense is going to be able to get after Derek Carr and be able to slow down what um, Jacobs is going to do on the ground. So... They're going to fall behind. They're going to make Derek Carr win this game. They're going to be The Saints are going to be able to run the ball, control time of clock. I don't expect a huge game right off the bat from Drew Brees in this one. Maybe a touchdown or two, but then I think it's going to become the Kamara and uh, Murray show on the ground. And I think ultimately the Saints do end up handing the Raiders the uh, first loss on the season. It's going to be interesting, though, how... If Mike Thomas does miss time, who's going to step up and be that guy? Um, it looked like it was going to be Cook in week one, but if Sanders, you bring him in to be that veteran presence, um, if he can step up and do well, um, that's going to do a lot of things, build a lot of confidence for the rest of the season for the Saints to know that, hey, we also have these other weapons that if Mike Thomas is struggling a little bit, which he doesn't do a lot, but we can call on these other guys late in moments, down the season, late in the season to make big plays. So this is, it's not, it's a silver lining for if Mike Thomas can't uh, end up suiting up on Monday night that they can maybe build some confidence with Drew Brees and these other guys um, for later in the season. But ultimately, like I said, Saints do beat the Raiders on uh, Monday night. That is going to do it for the NFL portion of Carson Sack this week. We are now going to switch focus a little bit and talk about college football. And really, to, for the next week in a row until the SEC comes back, and then with rumblings going on now as I record this at 4.40 in the evening, afternoon, whatever, on Tuesday, September 15th, the Big Ten may be coming back. It's just really hard for me to get into or care about anything in this college football season. There's just not, it, it was great to have on. It was fun to have it on back, but really I found myself having it more as background noise last Saturday than me being really interested in anything. The only game I sat down and really cared about was the Louisville game rooting against them when they took on WKU. And for, in the first quarter, it seemed like, hey, maybe the Hilltoppers are going to do it. They're going to pull off the upset, and they just weren't able to do so. But, like I said, it's, for me, as an Ohio State fan, a Kentucky fan, until the 26th, for sure that we know that Kentucky's going to come back. It's very hard to care and be interested in this football season. And, I mean, you look at the slate here for Week 2, there's still just no really good games, like, at all. Um... The games that catch my eye, Houston and Baylor. How's Baylor going to do without Matt Rule uh, as their head coach? Opening up the season, Houston without King who at quarterback, who Louisville has to face this Saturday coming up in the primetime game. I'm going to get to that. Don't you fucking worry. Uh, Notre Dame's going to host USF. I mean, 
North Carolina and Charlotte, the 12th team in the country, play Charlotte in week two, like, sick. The Citadel, Clemson, the number one team plays the Citadel. Like, who gives a shit? But, again, the only big schedule, big game on the schedule, excuse me, for this week is Miami, 17th in the country, going to, it's not even Papa John's Cardinal Stadium anymore, just Cardinal Stadium, to face 18th Louisville. Uh, Mikhail Cunningham, in his first game, goes 19 for 34, 343 yards, and three touchdowns. On the ground, Hawkins for Louisville, 71 yards and one touchdown, and then Fitzpatrick. Through the air, 110 yards and one touchdown. On the opposite side for Miami, uh, King for them at quarterback, 144 yards on touchdown. He also had a rushing touchdown and just an insane stat. I think it's like 16 or 17 games in a row now where he's got a rushing and passing touchdown. That blows my mind. Like I understand that's in this day and age in college for quarterbacks. That's not like crazy to think like a quarterback's gonna have a rushing and a passing touchdown but to do it for so many games in a row as he has um pretty impressive so before I get into my prediction for this I just have to say for every L fan that is saying oh it's Satterfield's second year second game and he already has game day coming to Cardinal Stadium coming to Louisville how impressive Shut the fuck up. Do you think at all if there was a worthwhile Big 12 game, if the SEC was playing, if the Pac-12 was playing, if the Big 10 was playing, if any of those other conferences at the time were playing right now, that this game would even be sniffed for this location for game day. You are out of your goddamn mind. And it is so frustrating to have Louisville fans hang their hat on that. It's game day. Who gives a shit? I don't care. Guess what? Whether game day was there or not, it's going to be played. And mm, it pisses me off. I that's I just had to get that out. Um, ultimately, though, <laughs> I think Louisville's defense is still their big question mark. The offense looked good. They're going to be able to be dynamic and put up points and score and run the ball extremely well and use Cunningham, who at times, if he can use his arm and be effective, then this offense obviously becomes a lot more complete and a lot more dangerous. But at times, looking at what Western Kentucky was able to do on offense, especially in the first half, really that first quarter, there were some concerns that spilled over from last year where for Louisville's defense, maybe a little undersized, playing some guys that are, yes, it is their position, but there could be some more size and better fit players in those spots that in the coming years, Satterfield is going to get that and that defense will improve. At times they did look small and WKU was able to push them around a little bit, but ultimately the talent, outweighed the bad for Louisville and they were able to succeed but you come up against Miami who has could probably match you talent for talent and speed for speed size for size this is where things get a little interesting ultimately I think if the fans were here for Louisville then it would be which there's some are but I'm saying if there was a full stadium or whatever you want to classify as full, then I think that Louisville would be a very easier pick for me to make in this one. But I just think with the dynamics that King brings for the Hurricanes and the weapons that they have around him, 
that I think ultimately Miami is going to keep this game extremely close, and I think Cunningham might be forced to win the game for them. And I, at this moment, I get Cunningham as a good quarterback, but if he's asked to win a game with his arm, I still have questions. So I am ultimately going to take Miami, and it's not because I just dislike Louisville. It's just because I think... I just told you why. It's not a hater pick. It's just me putting on my analyst hat and doing so. It's not a nail in the coffin for Louisville season whatsoever. This is a 50-50 game where obviously when you look back at the year, any team can win this, but this is going to define, this. not this game, but games like this are going to define how you ultimately look at the season, whether you think, hey, we progressed, we really did good, we um lived up to or surpassed expectations where if you're going to string a couple of wins together in games like that, then yes, ultimately you had a good year. But if you end up losing more of the 50-50 games, then obviously you're going to look back on this one and say, hey, the season wasn't that great. Again, I don't think it's the nail in the coffin for the Cardinals at all this year. They have a lot of talent on both sides of the football, especially on offense. Just a little bump in the road so far for them. Now that that is out of the way, we can switch focus again. To a little bit more tamer sport, we have the second major of the PGA Tour revamp season. Wingfoot is hosting the U.S. Open this week. <sighs> okay, I'm going to say it. I'm going to be in the minority here, and that is okay. Personally for me, I do not like tournaments like what we had a couple weeks ago at the BMW and the U.S. Open, typically where... The golf course wins. I'm not in favor of tournaments where the course is way too easy like we saw in the first PGA playoff tournament where Dustin goes out and shoots 30 under. I think that's terrible as well. But I absolutely hate golf tournaments where the golf course is just beating the shit out of every golfer. It's like going to watch up pickup basketball or if you were just to go to your local public course. If I want to watch shitty golf, I know where to go. And like, it's obviously this style of golf is for some people and seeing guys hitting in the fairway and then hitting it 30 feet in the middle of the green and two putting for a par. Like, obviously, some people get their rocks off to that. And that's a great test of golf what the u.s open should be all of that and like making the smart play that's rewarded i totally understand but i just cannot get behind it i don't like watching professionals get punished and beat up by sometimes ridiculous golf course conditions it's fun for a little bit but then ultimately four days of it i get sick of it and you can look at for me personally, what I enjoy is sort of what like the PGA has had the last couple of years, especially this year. Anywhere from that 10 to 16 or 15 under range where players are scoring, there are still things in question where there's holes and shots that if you go and you go after a pin, you're going to get penalized. Things like that where the scoring opportunities are still there. The course isn't ridiculously uh, too hard. That's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for a golf course that is going to test players, but ultimately players are still going to be able to score on. But all, but at the same time, if one bad decision is made here or there, they still get cost 
strokes and it still factors into ultimately the the result end result so again i get i'm probably in the minority there but i just cannot get behind um what is probably going to be another vicious week of golf at the u.s open apparently the rough it was at three inches earlier this week they mowed it yesterday i think i don't think they're going to mow it again some people are saying they're going to let it get to a foot that's atrocious by my standards that's ridiculous now we can talk a little bit about the green complexes apparently those things are baked out the contours and everything in these greens are so nuanced and massive slopes and everything i I'm excited to see how that works out and how these guys are able to handle spin rate and all this other scientific shit that Bryson likes to talk about. How they're going to be able to hold the green, hit different type of ball flights into things. Just that's exciting to me. I'm excited to see that. Um, we can look now at some odds. Obviously, the favorite Dustin Johnson at 72, the hottest golfer in the world. Already has the U.S. Open under his belt. Has played well in U.S. Open-like conditions. Um, it's hard not to really think he's going to win this week. Looking down the line as well, John Rahm, 10-1. to He is probably the second hottest golfer. Um, I think at times his mental state and how he gets into his head a little easier than some other players do, I think that is what is ultimately going to cost him this week. Justin Thomas is sitting at 14-1. to I just think you have to be a premium driver of the golf ball, and at times JT loses it one way or the other, and that's concerning because it's not just a big right miss or a big left miss. He sprays it all over sometimes and in crucial moments sometimes, and he bails himself out with good play. Um, I don't know if you're going to be able to do that out of this rough, though, so I'm not in on JT. Xander Shoffley is sitting at 16-1, to a great driver of the golf ball, good around greens, good with his irons. He's going to be a big, trendy pick. I like what he did, how he was trending at the end of the year as well, so that's a name to keep an eye on. Roy McIlroy, 16-1 as well, the new dad. Um, he seemed to be playing a little bit freer, if you want to say that, um, in the Tour Championship down in Eastlake in his first start after having the child. So that's a name to keep an eye on, but I ultimately don't think he's going to end up winning. Colin Morikawa, um, I think he's just, I don't like him to win this week. He has the game for it. Um, we saw that at the PGA, how he was able to just hit fairway after fairway, hit his impressive irons into the green, and then um, keep staying hot with his putter as well. But I just think the duties he had to do after winning the PGA and how he fared in tournaments after that, um, I just don't foresee him doing well this week. Bryson DeChambeau sitting at 22-1. to Already this week he's saying, I'm keeping my foot on the gas. We are all gas, no brakes. I'm going to keep trying to hit the dimples off the fucking golf ball. Bryson, I wish you nothing but the best. I have you in a fantasy league for a season-long thing. I hope you do well, but this is just not the golf course to try and bully. And if that's the game plan you're going to do, uh, it's a no from me, dog. So have fun with that, Bryson. Webb Simpson is another guy at 28-1 to that has the game for it. Already has a U.S. Open as well, so I like him. Daniel Berger, DB, continues the straight vibe. Um, probably the most consistent golfer this entire year on since the restart. Again, has the game for it, drives it straight, has good irons, and when he puts, he's one, and when his putter is hot, 
Um, he's one of the hottest putters in the tour, so I like him as well. Patrick Cantley, 30 to 1. You could say the same thing that I said for Webb Simpson about him. Hideki, I don't think. Hideki Matsuyama, he's 33 to 1. I don't think his putting is going to be anywhere near good enough to win. Tony Finau, I like him a lot this week. I think his driving and uh, iron game is going to be good. It's the putter question for me because when he's off with that putter, he's off. But when he is hot, he is right up there um, with some of the best in strokes game putting. Uh, just some names to throw out that I do like. Patrick Reed is sitting at 40 to 1. Um, Matthew Fitzpatrick is sitting at 55 to 1. I really like Matthew Wolf this week at 60 to 1. Um, I think he's going to drive the ball well. If he can control his spin rate, he does have a little bit of juice and a little bit of sauce on his wedges and his irons that he's going to need to tone down a little bit. Um, but I like him a lot this week. And then continuing down the list, Bubba Watson at 101. I don't. I just have a feeling. I don't have a real reason why. I just have a feeling. So I guess going into this, I think Dustin, Xander, Webb, Berger, I'm going to secretly root for Bryson, but I don't think he's going to have it. Um, Reed and Vicky Baby. I love Victor Hovland. I I don't know if his putting and his chipping is going to be good enough around the greens because um, if he misses in some bad places, this rough and his already shaky wedge game is going to come into the spotlight. And that concerns me a little bit because it's not great, but I like him and I also like Wolf as well, and then, as I said, Fitzpatrick. If you told me, gun to my head, I have to pick somebody, obviously I'm taking Dustin Johnson, the hottest golfer in the world right now, um, and already won a U.S. Open, and his game suits a U.S. Open perfectly. Okay, so that does it for Tuesday, September 15th, what I wanted to cover today. Going to watch the first game, as I said earlier in the intro, the... First game of the Eastern Conference Finals, the last game, Game 7 of the Western Conference Semifinals, and hopefully have some information on the Big Ten and their res resumption or start of a season for Big Ten football that I'm going to be recording my thoughts on all of those topics for tomorrow. Um, so stay tuned. Um, you're going to be hearing it like nothing ever happened, like 12 hours didn't pass, but um, 12 hours is going to pass, and then I'll be recording this next part for you. All right, coming to you live after these NBA games tonight. It's 11.57. Uh, just want to get this game out of the way because we have a big one to talk about next. The Heat in the first game of the Eastern Conference Finals in overtime pull off what some people you could guess you could call it an upset over the Boston Celtics, 117-114. to 114. Goran Dragic, the leading scorer for the Heat with 29 points. For the Celtics, though, it is a tale about as old as time for the last year. So Jason Tatum leading the way with 30 points. Really, I mean, we can look at some other stats here as well. Jimmy Butler for the Heat, 20 points, 5 rebounds, 5 assists. Tyler Hero coming up huge for the Heat with 12 points, 9 assists, and 11 rebounds. 1 rebound away from a triple-double. Just a huge performance from the rookie in this first game for the Heat. It's 
to me, honestly, the Heat have just been a question mark all season. Obviously, you have Jimmy Butler, who I don't think people would say he's a superstar. He's a great player. I think a top 20 player in the NBA. But then the Heat and Spolstra, and you, you can't, I cannot stress enough and give enough credit to how much Eric Spolstra has coached these guys up and really just instilled, you hear it all the time on the broadcast, but this Heat culture about them. But... Back to the original point, you have Jimmy Butler, this top 20 player in the NBA, and then you just have Bam Adebayo, this emerging great defensive player who is flirting with triple doubles left and right. You have Tyler Hero, who seems to be just unflappable when it comes to big moments. Then you pair that with uh, Crowder, who is hitting big shots as well, Drogic, uh, who is going out and leading the team in scoring. Um... You don't have all these big-name guys, but you have guys stepping up, playing in their roles, and just exceeding and buying into this team-first mentality and idea that Spolstra is pitching to them, and it is incredible to watch. Um, on the other side, uh, like I said, Tatum leads the way for the Celtics, and then you have, <clears throat> let's see, um, Tatum with 30, Kemba Walker had himself a solid night with 19, Marcus Smart with 26. If you're the Celtics, you cannot waste a scoring output like that from Marcus Smart. You cannot waste that. Um, they should have won this game. Jalen Brown, 17 points, and then the bench was, um, pretty missed for them as well. Going forward, I do ultimately think that the Celtics have the better team, but, it just seemed down the stretch like this. the Heat wanted it more. And Jimmy Butler's ability to close out these close games in these playoffs has been incredible. Um, I think this is going to be a super exciting series. But ultimately, I am going to take the Celtics. I'm hoping it goes to seven. And I hope we get six more of these classics. And I cannot stress enough how just exciting and obviously critical that block by Bam was at the end. But to see him... To see Tatum get by Butler, who is a great defender in his own right, just to be stuffed by the rotating over Bam was extremely impressive. Hats off to Bam in that one. Um, ultimately, though, as I have said, I do have the Celtics moving on in what I hope is a seven-game series. And now what we've all been waiting for, the Game 7 of the Western Conference Semifinals, the Nuggets, shocking, coming back from a 3-1 deficit for the second round in a row, beat your Los Angeles Clippers 104-89. Before I go in on the Clippers, I do have to say, hand up, I picked them to win the NBA Finals. Now, this is an old journalism trick. You take the best team, but you don't take the team that you want to win. I would love nothing more than the Lakers to win this NBA Finals. But that way you have your bases covered regardless. Hey, if the Clippers were going to win, hey, I was right on my prediction. It was the best team, obviously, whatever. But when the Clippers ultimately lose now, I can come back and say, yeah, I was rooting so hard for them to lose. I'm glad they lost all this stuff. It's... One oh, journalism 101. Take notes. But let's look at some stats for this one. Jamal Murray going off once again. 15 of 26 on field goals, 40 points. Montrez Harrell, your leading scorer for the Los Angeles Clippers. Not 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 Kawhi Leonard. Um not not playoff P. Huh huh. How's that work? Oh, also, Kawhi Leonard and Paul George and Lou Williams, I believe. Don't add their totals up. They don't even equal as many points as Jamal Murray, Jamal Murray scored by himself. Uh, let's look more at Kawhi's 
numbers for today. 6 of 22 on field goals, 2 of 7 from 3, 6 rebounds, 6 assists, so he was getting people involved. Again, only 14 points. And then playoff P, Paul George, uh, 10 points, 2 assists, 4 rebounds. Um, Montrezl Harrell, though, as I said, 20 points. Only three rebounds. I'm surprised by that. Lou Williams, only seven points in 25 minutes. For the Nuggets, obviously you start with Murray with the 40 points. But then you have Jokic. He contributes 16. Also 22 rebounds. 13 assists. He had a triple-double already in the third quarter. That was the earliest ever for a triple-double in a Game 7 elimination. Uh, Millsap going down in the fourth quarter. He hit a couple big threes. Uh, Grant as well with 14 points. Uh, Gary Harris playing well again. He had 14 points. Michael Porter Jr. only 2 points but 7 rebounds. Got to get him involved a little bit more in this next round against the Lakers. The round that the Clippers are not advancing to because they blew a 3-1 lead. Um, Paul George only scored 10 points. Kawhi only scored 14. Um, that's only 24. That's 16 less than what Jamal Murray scored all by himself. Just a reminder on that. I will say, me going in on the Clippers right now, um, and I think what a lot of people are going to be doing going in on the Clippers is only going to create a monster next year for, for Kawhi. Um, we've seen his robotic tendencies already. Um, I cannot imagine the work he's going to put in this offseason in the gym and the product that whenever this NBA season does start next year, um, what he's going to do. So let's all enjoy it now because I think um, he is going to be on a war path next year and everyone needs to take notice and take cover next year because I'm pretty concerned about that. And then we need to talk about Doc Rivers. This is his third 3-1 lead that he has blown. He was outcoached um, by the Nuggets coach all night. Um, I, again, I don't mean to pile on and it's going to sound like I'm piling on, but you're the Clippers. You have this high stakes free agency where you beat the Lakers for Kawhi Leonard. You trade so much for Paul George, practically your entire future for Paul George. And what does he do? 10 points, abysmal in these playoffs. He had one or two good games, everything else more like playoff PU. I tweeted that. I'll say it here. PU, playoff PU, because he's dunk ultimately it's huge for this nuggets franchise going forward if they can keep jokic and murray and these role players around them there's only going to get better and better and better um if with the emergence of michael porter jr that i'm sure i've been harping on since he got drafted by these guys that it's going to happen sooner or later if they're going to have a chance in <clears throat> excuse me in this Western Conference Finals, Michael Porter Jr. I think has to play big. So does Harris and so does Millsap because I think we know that Jokic and Murray are going to get theirs. That's going to be a great matchup between AD and Jokic. And then I think LeBron, <clears throat> excuse me, could also switch on there. That pick and roll thing that they were doing tonight that really destroyed the Clippers, I think the, the Lakers are going to be a lot better equipped to defend that than what the Clippers were because Montrezl Harrell and Lou Williams were defensive liabilities when they were put in that pick and roll. But <clears throat> as I've said, not a crippling loss for the Clippers. I think it's going to just really light a fire under Kawhi Leonard's ass and we are all in trouble for next year. Soak it in, Lakers fans. Soak it in, anybody. LeBron fans. Whoever, whatever you have a reason to dislike the Clippers, soak it in, enjoy it for now, because next year I think we are in trouble. 
looking ahead to the Western Conference Finals, <clears throat> I think you have what is probably the best team left going up against, I would, you gotta say, the hottest team in the bubble. I understand to get three games in a row like this, you gotta be hot, but you also gotta be cold for three games because you fell down 3-1, but... Again, these Nuggets proven back-to-back series and really all year that backed into a corner, they just come out swinging and they land the haymakers that they're throwing. So I'm excited to see what this Western Conference Finals are going to be. I don't think it's going to go seven. I think we have a Lakers in six, a very tight series. I think every game is going to be close, but I think just... The fatigue, I think, at some point has to set in for these Nuggets. And I think it's ultimately going to be down the stretch in the late games of this next series in the Western Conference Finals. So I'm going to take the Lakers in six over the Denver Nuggets. All right, that is going to do it for this week's episode of Carson Sack Podcast number 73, where we talked balls. Thank you for listening. Like, rate, review, subscribe, all that good shit on iTunes. Sign up for the daily fantasy contest for the NBA, NFL, and the PGA all on Thrive Fantasy Sports app. They are my first official sponsor. I appreciate them getting in contact with me and so I can help build their audience and I can get um, more people involved in the sporting world. So if you do go to Thrive Fantasy, their app, use promo code SAC, all capitals, S-A-C-K, and... If you download it, use that code, deposit $20, Thrive Fantasy is going to match that deposit for you, so you get a free $20 from Thrive. Thank you once again for listening to Carson Sack Podcast, where we talk balls, and as we always end here on the sack, we will be see. Money in my head